Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 62, verse 5, which says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, let me be the third or fourth person to welcome you to our church and uh, our new, new location at the Stewart Hotel. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I am honored to be one of the pastors here. And as Pastor G mentioned, uh, this has been in the works for quite some time. And so I really want to give thanks to God for his provision and his blessing upon our community. And in light of our move to our new space, we thought that uh, we would do a four-part teaching series uh, on what the church is. Because the church is not a building, but the church is the people. So people do not walk into church, rather the church walks into a building. And so for the next four weeks, I want to paint for you a picture of what the church looks like. And I want to, I want to sear this into your mind and into your hearts so that you do not forget what the church is. And these four paintings, these four pictures are this, that the church is a bride, the church is family, the church is a body, and the church is a building but not the kind of building that you might anticipate. Now, of these four images, these four pictures, I think my favorite image of the church is that the church is a bride. Now, some years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine from seminary, and he said, Aaron, I want to write a book. And I said, that's great. What's the book going to be about? And he said, I'm going to call the book, I Love Jesus, but I hate his wife. Now you might be thinking, I didn't know that Jesus had a wife and you would be right. Jesus was not married, at least in the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code fictional sense, but he was married in a metaphorical sense and that is to the church. That the church is the bride of Christ. And so when my friend said, I love Jesus, but I hate his wife, what he was really saying is, I love Jesus but I hate the church. And the reason why he said he hated the church is because he was disappointed by the church, he was frustrated by the church, and he had now become disillusioned by the church. And chances are, if you've grown up in the church at one point in your life and spiritual pilgrimage, you too have been disappointed by the church, you've been frustrated by the church, you've been hurt by the church, and perhaps even disillusioned by the church. And if you're new to, new to the church, just give it some time and you too will be frustrated by the church, disappointed by the church, and even disillusioned by the church. Some years ago, I was talking to another student at a different seminary, and I asked her, what church do you attend? And I'll never forget her response, because she said to me, I don't go to church. 
I follow Jesus, but I don't follow the church. So what do we do with the church? Do we love her or do we leave her? My simple thesis for today is this, that if Jesus is a groom and the church is a bride and Jesus loves his bride, the church, if Jesus loves the church, then so must you. So I want to take a look at our first passage from Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And here the prophet Isaiah makes a comparison of God's people as a bride and how God, our maker, our creator, our builder, is united, yoked, and married to us. Now here's a question. Why does Isaiah use such an intimate metaphor like marriage to depict and describe our relationship to him? Well, whenever two people get married, the two become one. And similarly, when Jesus says that he is married to the church, the two sort of uh, become one. They go hand in hand. And therefore, it is impossible to actually say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. If you love Jesus, you will also uh, love the church as well because what you say about the church, you actually say about Jesus. How you treat the church is actually how you treat Jesus. And let me give you an example of how this works. Over half the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. But long before the Apostle Paul was this decorated apostle, in his former life, he was a religious terrorist and the greatest persecutor of the church. And one day as the Apostle Paul is walking on a road, he has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now here's the thing, Paul, he had never met Jesus before. So how is it that Jesus can say, why are you persecuting me? When in fact he was persecuting the church. The reason why Jesus can say that is because the two are one, and what you do to the church, you do to me. How you treat the church is also how you treat me. If you're indifferent to the church, you're also indifferent to me. So let me give you a more tangible example of how this works. If you like me, but you don't like my wife Hannah for whatever reason, it's gonna be very difficult for us to be friends because how you treat her it's also how you treat me. What you say about her is also what, in fact, you're saying about me. Let me give you another example. Let's say John Doe is very interested in Jane Doe. And so John says, I want to be in a relationship with you. But here's the thing. I only want to be in a relationship with Jane. I don't want to be in a relationship with Doe. What do you think Jane would say? She would say, you can't just have half of me. You have to have all of me. You either have all of me or you have none of me. And similarly, it is with Jesus and the church. The two go hand in hand, and they cannot be uh, separated. So what does it look like then for us to love the church? And I would say at the very least two things. Number one, it means that we commit to the church. And number two, it means that we try to purify the church. So let me read for us our next passage from Hebrews 10. 
And it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This verse says, let us not give up meeting together. Evidently, even 2,000 years ago, there were some people that followed Jesus, but they did not follow the church. There are some people that believed in Jesus, but they did not believe in the church. There are lots of reasons for not wanting to attend church. The hypocrisy, the insensitivity, the messiness of relationships, pragmatic reasons, you might feel like you just don't get anything out of this. Or you might think, why can't I just listen to an MP3 at home? Why do I actually have to come to church? So pragmatically, theologically, you might think that there are all sorts of reasons sociologically for not wanting to actually engage or attend uh, church at all. And I want you to know if that is how you feel at one point in your life or even right now, I want you to know that I really, really understand. There was a period of my own life when I was very disillusioned with the church. And every Sunday I would sit right where you're sitting right now and I would sit with my arms critically folded, critical of the sermons, critical of the music, critical of the people, critical of the fakeness. I was very disenchanted with the church, and I was very disillusioned by it. Instead of having arms that are open to serve, my arms were constantly critically folded. I was more of a critic than a servant. There's one story, however, that every time I hear it, it forces me to unfold my critical arms. And it's a story by a pastor named Joe Novenson. And Joe once said, I know that your church has problems, and I know that you think the only solution to your church's problems is by gossiping about it. But I want you to know that the next time you are tempted to speak ill of your church, I want you to imagine that Jesus is standing right behind you, gently tapping you on the shoulder and saying to you, excuse me, but that's my wife you're talking about. The North African theologian Augustine once said, supposedly, the church is a whore, but she is the bride of Christ, and you have no right to abandon her. You have no right to abandon her in terms of your commitment to her, your service to her, your love for her, and your prayers for her, because Jesus loves the church and is committed to his bride, so must we be as well. We would never let a bad restaurant experience prevent us from going to other restaurants. And similarly, my encouragement and challenge to you is do not let a bad church experience prevent you from coming to church. I want to read for you uh, something that is somewhat sarcastic on the first page of your bulletin by Josh Rivas. And Rivas says, Pastor, I'm going to support my favorite football team, even, even if I hate the coach. The program is corrupt and they lose every game. But if this church does a single thing I disagree with, I'm out of here. Sam Mulberry follows up by saying, the only perfect church is the heavenly assembly. 
and this does not meet at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday or 11 and 1. So until you're called to join the throng around God's throne, you're called to belong to a church in which others will get things wrong, and so will you. You know, if, if a hospital is filled with sick people and unhealthy people, we would never demolish the hospital because it's so full of sick people. Why? Because the purpose of a hospital is actually to heal sick people and unhealthy people. And similarly, I would say that the church is filled with sick people and unhealthy people. But the purpose of church is to heal the sick, to heal the unhealthy, and to heal the hurting. And last time I checked, hurt people, hurt people. We are a bunch of porcupines constantly pricking one another. But that doesn't mean that we get rid of the church. Jesus loves the church. And this is the exact place that you need to come to find healing for your brokenness. A person that feels like they do not need the church is the equivalent of a sick person that feels like they do not need medicine or that they do not need a doctor. You see, some people, when you think about what Christianity is, what the gospel is, it's, it's really the good, good news that there is no one too bad for God. But there are some people that think that they're too good for him. We believe that none of us are too good for him, but that all of us are broken, wounded, and flawed in one way or another. I want to read you a third quote from Jared Wilson uh, in his article, The Bridegroom's Incredible Vow, and Wilson says, every day you and I reject the holiness of Jesus in a million different ways, only a fraction of which we are conscious of. If Jesus were keeping a list of our wrongs, none of us would stand a chance. At any second of any day, even on our best days, Jesus could have the legal grounds to say, enough of this, I can't do it anymore. You violated my love for the last time. The truth is, you've never met a wrong spouse like Jesus. You've never met a disrespected spouse like Jesus. You've never met a spouse who more than carried their weight like Jesus, and yet he loves us. Friends, church is not a place that we just attend, but it is a people that we commit to. So what does it look like to love the church? Not only commit to the church, but it also entails purifying the church as well. So let me read for a second Corinthians, which is our final verse, chapter 11, verse two. And Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a virgin, a pure virgin to him. When Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, this church is really, really broken and messed up. There is a member of this church in Corinth. There is a member who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Within this church, people are actually suing each other. In addition to that, there's actually theological division. This church is a really, really broken and messed up church. But rather than washing his hands of it, Paul in particular because he planted this church, doesn't want to quit on this church or abandon it. Instead, he wants to love this church and purify this church as much as possible. And the way that he does that is by sending these letters. And in the first letter that he sends to the church in Corinth, in chapter 13, he writes this famous chapter called the love chapter. And in this chapter, he says things like, love is patient, 
It's kind. It doesn't envy. It always hopes. It doesn't give up. It always perseveres. It's always committed. It doesn't dishonor others. And he talks about what love is. And chances are, if you've been to enough weddings before, you may have heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 preached. In fact, I'm doing a wedding this Saturday, and I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. But did you know that this letter was actually not written to a husband and wife? Did you know that contextually, this chapter was written to a church, that as a church community, this is what love is, and this is the way that we're supposed to act towards one another. This is what it means to be a community that desires to purif be purified and desires to be committed and loved uh, to one another. And I think the reason why Paul uses the phrase that he wants to present the Corinthian church as a pure version is because throughout the Old Testament, God's people are oftentimes referred to as whores and prostitutes. And I hate to keep using this imagery over and over again, but throughout the Old Testament it is used, and I realize that it can be a little bit much, perhaps even hyperbolic. But let me give you a quick definition of what sin really is. Sin is whenever we love something more than God. That's what sin is. Sin is not only breaking God's commandments, but sin is also breaking God's heart because you love something more than you love him. Now, that could be the twin idols that all of us have, which is a life of comfort and ease, a life of security, your kids, your profession, money. Sin is when we love anything more and we love God. And we all have something. But even though oftentimes we love things more than we love God, like a marathon runner who is on their final lap, final mile, his love for us continues to persevere even though we cheat on him and are unfaithful to him. And perhaps the greatest story of persevering love in the Bible is the story of Hosea and Gomer. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Hosea is the husband and Gomer is his wife. And God tells Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman who is also a prostitute named Gomer. And so he does. And God also says to have a family with Gomer. And they do. They actually have three kids. But here's the thing. Many scholars believe that the second and third king, uh, second and third children actually did not belong to Hosea, but it actually belonged to, they actually belonged to other men. In other words, Gomer was unfaithful, not once, but twice, perhaps even more so than that. And one day Hosea comes home, and he sees that Gomer is missing, his unfaithful wife. And like Liam Neeson, he tears apart the city looking for his unfaithful wife, and we're not exactly sure where he finds her, but there's a good possibility she, that she's at the red light district at a brothel because we do know this, that she has sold herself to slavery, and chances are it was her body. And so when Hosea sees Gomer being trafficked, as it were, rather than washing his hands and saying, I'm done with this, I'm so done with this. He purchases her back and he gives money now to her owners in order to redeem and ransom her because his love for her is unconditional. 
You know what that story is ultimately about? That story is ultimately about the gospel and how even when we cheat on God and are unfaithful to him, that like Liam Neeson, he tears apart this world looking for us to pursue us, to ransom us, to redeem us with the cost of his son's life. And I think the reason why this story is so powerful and why this story, I believe, can purify the church is because throughout all of the counseling that I've done, there is one thing that I have realized over the years, that people are never judged into change, but people are loved into change. And on the cross, instead of us experiencing the wrath and judgment of God, Jesus takes that in our place, and what we are is the beneficiaries of God's grace, mercy, and love upon our life. Now, if you believe that, and if you really, really understand his grace and mercy in your life, and his love for you, I think it means at the very least two things. Number one, if Jesus is married to the church, we can't casually date her. If he is that committed to the church and loves the church as his bride, we can't just show up whenever we want to, have one night stands maybe twice a year with her. We have to be committed to her just as Jesus is committed to the church. I have never met a healthy Christian that divorces themselves from the church. And so if you've been away for quite some time, and if you've been on sabbatical, come back. And I want you to know that instead of judgment, there is nothing but love. But come back. And the second thing um, that I would say by uh, way of application is that for those of you who are new to Christianity and new to the church in particular, expect to be disappointed, okay? Expect to be frustrated, expect to be hurt, just as when you enter a relationship with God, he expects to be disappointed by you, he expects to be hurt by you, and he expects to be frustrated by you. And just as Jesus forgives over and over again, when the church does hurt you, forgive her. When the church disappoints you, love her. When the church is not meeting your needs, serve her. Because if Jesus loves the church, so must you. Let me close with one final quote from Charles Spurgeon on the first page of your bulletin. And this is what he says, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? The church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it, nor need, uh, nor need your own faults keep you back. 
For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is a fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of the church. And we're reminded as we meet in this this new space that uh, it is not the space that um, constitutes the church, but we do. Uh, And so it is my prayer that we would be a church, although very broken, that truly, truly loves one another. And I do pray that this space would bring about a forum and a venue for us to practice that love, uh, to share with one another, to serve one another, and to love the city that we live in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.